Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short term plans at uh1.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It's David. It's the podcast, trying to make economics easy podcast, more accessible, a little bit more relevant to all our lives. This week, we're going to talk about Bitcoin, but not just Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies in general, and maybe we're going to focus on money, the history of money, where it comes from where it's going to go. How are you, Ed? Very good. Not bad at all. Do you know, speaking of Bitcoin, JM, who's with us today. Hello, oh, JM. yes. For the first time ever, the Canadian is going to be live on the podcast. Normally, he is sitting behind us making weird facial gestures when John and I go into uh, clearly a space where we shouldn't go. And <laughs> he, uh, he tries his best to keep us on track. But this time, because we're going to talk about Bitcoin, JM is with us. JM, how are you, man? Very good, very good. Um, excited to try this out. Okay, cool. Good man. John, what's the story? Uh, the story is great. Actually, it was JM who was telling me about uh, <laughs> the drug dealer who had, was it 53 million? He yeah, had? he just lost it. And he, uh, Jesus. How did he lose it? Well, go on, tell us, JM. Well, there's a variety of stories of people losing Bitcoin, uh, one of them being people lose their hard drive. But also, if you forget your password to your wallet, you can lose all of your riches, all of your speculative Can you not go back to somebody and say, sorry, could you just send me my uh, password? Our great Dublin drug dealer background, (laughs) can you just break Bitcoin's legs and get your fucking shekel back off him? No, unfortunately, once it's gone, it's gone. You... I believe, had Bitcoin. I did, and I lost them all. I got hacked when the Mt. Gox exchange got hacked. I was there and I was trading and all of my Bitcoins disappeared. And there's a class action lawsuit, but I never got anything back. Do you mind me asking how much? Um, At the three Bitcoins. To be honest, it was three Bitcoins. I was just dipping my toes into it. And mm. I remember getting it for the first time. It was a very drug dealer kind of transaction where <laughs> we found a guy who had Bitcoins. So it was a very weird, shady transactional where you find someone who has Bitcoins and then you get in touch with him and then they come to you and you make sure that... So a Bitcoin wallet is like an IBAN. It's a series of digits and yeah. letters. And you give him your IBAN number, 
he starts transferring the money and then you give him cash for every Bitcoin he transfers in. So it very much feels like a drug deal it to get really Bitcoins. Uh, but after that, then you can start trading on different coins and uh, the whole exchange got hacked and we all lost our money. But I thought that was the whole thing about Bitcoin is that it couldn't be hacked. Well, so the currency itself is relatively bulletproof. Mm. The problem is the wallets and the exchanges. It's once you take, it's like, think of it as the $20 bill or the 20 euro bill can't be hacked. Showing my Canadian this right now. (laughs) The 20 euro bill can't be hacked. Like it's got pretty safe how it's made and it's very hard to replicate Mm. and even harder for Bitcoins. But once you take it out of your wallet and you're handing it out to somebody else, that is when it can become dangerous and some it's third, exposed. Yeah, right. it's exposed and a third party can come in and decide to five-finger discount you. <laughs> so the same thing happens when you put your Bitcoins into an exchange. It's a bit like putting it into these various um, digital stock exchanges like we have here in Europe, like the Digiros of ourselves, where suddenly it's out of your account and it's in the their account and you yeah. can make money, but until that money comes back to you, it's in the exchange, and that's but, where it resides. But isn't it a little, little bit like you deposit money in the bank, the bank gets robbed? It's not the money that's robbed, it's the bank that's robbed. Yes, exactly. But the difference is the bank give you your money back. and Because the central bank gives the money to the bank. Whereas in Bitcoin, if you're hacked, you're gone. Oh, the person disappeared, the exchange disappeared, got taken offline, and it's all these international exchanges. You don't fully understand where it is or who founded it it's a it was especially back in 2012 it was still very much the wild west i've always been intrigued for two things about bitcoin is one is that it tends to be the preserve of the young in general are more interested in it and secondly when i'm in the states i have two different conversations about bitcoin when i'm in the west coast or if i'm ever in the west coast amongst kind of technologists Bitcoin is a technology thing. They talk about the technology and how technology is going to change the world. But when you're in the East Coast, Bitcoin tends to be more like a revolution against the elites. And so it's kind of, it's almost like it is what you want it to be. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm delighted now. I'm delighted now to be talking to a man who does understand Bitcoin, who gets it. Peter McCormick is on the line from Bedford in England. But as you can here with a name like Peter McCormick, he could clearly play up front for the Republic if he's if he's any good as well. You know, the Bitcoin thing goes bust and he can, he's got two good feet. You know, we'll, we'll get in contact with him. But uh, even also, one good foot. Uh, even one good foot. If he's good in the air, if he's good in the air. <laughs> Peter's got two podcasts, What Bitcoin Did and Defiance. Have a gander with the two podcasts. Very, very interesting. A couple of weeks ago, he was talking to our old mate, Stephanie Kelton, who's been on our show and is an old mate of mine. He's deep in deep in the thoughts about uh, monetary ideas, monetary history, economics, Bitcoin, crypto, all that sort of stuff. One of the best accolades I can always give everyone or anyone about something like Bitcoin is if all the mainstream economists in the world, from the IMF, the European Commission, yada, 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 are all against something and the central banks, then you got to listen to it. That's a really good rule of thumb. So, Peter, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm flying. I'm flying. Tell me, Peter, really simply, what is Bitcoin? It's always a good and tough question. Always trying to think of a good way to explain it to begin with. But there's another guy. So I'm, I'm, I would say I'm a bit of a moron um, trying to navigate this stuff. And I tend to spend most of my time interviewing all the experts. But there's a guy called Vijay Boyapati. So Vijay Boyapati, he was recently on a podcast, the Tom Woods Libertarian podcast, and he did a great job. So I'm going to steal part of what he said. But the way to think about Bitcoin is like digital gold. So it's gold that's online. And the reason you should care about that is like, actually, most of us don't really end up owning gold. So we're kind of like, well, why do I need Bitcoin? I mean, do you own gold? No. But we know the banks like it. We know the governments like it. I I get your point. So it's digital gold. So it's an asset that looks and smells and feels like something scarce and valuable. Yeah. There's... Very little of it left. You're not going to come across another massive gold mine. Maybe we will. Highly unlikely, given that it's been mined for thousands of years. So, yeah, no, I like that, like that framework. So keep, keep going. That's, that, that, for well, me, helps the whole thing. It depends on your audience, because I think also we need to have to like, do that bit where we talk about, well, why is gold itself important? Or why was it important? Or why is Bitcoin maybe better? But a lot of people don't think about this. A lot of people just tend to get paid at the end of the month, maybe save a little bit, spend most of it, and never really think about what money is or why it has value. But there are a lot of governments and a lot of banks that tend to hold gold. And and the reason they hold it is because the value of money, cash, typical, what we call fiat money, it tends to lose value over time because governments can print as much money as they want, as and when they need it. Whereas something like gold holds value. So one of the reasons that, like I want Bitcoin is because it's digital gold, it's something which can hold value over a long period of time. And there's a number of other reasons. But the reason Bitcoin is becoming super important, especially at a time like now, is that it acts like gold. And it's that property that you said, which is super important, which is scarcity. The reason gold has a lot of value, I mean, it's difficult to mine, but it, but it has scarcity. And um, Bitcoin itself has scarcity, but Bitcoin has these additional properties which make it better than gold. The one being that, has that this magical property where you can teleport it. So if I want to get some gold to you, if I wanted to get it to you, I would have to find a way of shipping it to you, whether it's via post, taking it myself. 
But if I want to get Bitcoin to you, you just have to give me an address and I can ping it and it's with you very, very quickly. And, I, and a good way to compare this is as um, the global economy is blowing up right now, <laughs> and the only escape that central banks seem to have is print more and more money. We're seeing it here in the UK. We are seeing it in the US. Um, so we're seeing the money supply inflate very, very quickly at the moment. And there is the potential danger that it's going to impact the savings that many of us have. So owning things like gold and Bitcoin is a way to protect yourself against that. I'll give you a really good story. I, I'm not a complete 100% Bitcoin guy. I actually believe in gold as well. And I think it, any good portfolio would have both in. So I try to buy some gold. But the process itself of registering, knowing which gold to buy, finding out that actually you can buy fake gold. I didn't even realize that until recently. So you have to get it verified. I have to find somewhere to store it. And also I had to find a way to wire the money, which all became quite complicated. In the end, I ended up just buying more Bitcoin because I bought it online. I instantly held it on my hardware wallet and I already had my security and protection in place. So the best way to think of Bitcoin is like digital gold with a few properties that make it better. Okay, I mean, that, I mean the, the fascinating thing then is because it's digital gold, it's not money. And that's an interesting place to start because gold has never been money gold as you said has been a value and sometimes you can borrow against the collateral that is your gold so you can turn gold into liquidity so you can't go to the local boozer here mckenna's in dunleary and rock up and say arthur can I have 10 pints and give him a speck of gold right what you can do obviously if you have gold you can actually leverage that gold by using it as collateral getting your money either selling selling it or borrowing against it. So so Bitcoin is not money. That's a crucial thing to understand. I don't know. I, I would challenge that. And, and I would say to you, what, what is money then? Well, if you think about money, so money has to be something you can trade, you can buy and sell with it. Uh, it's accepted by the vast, vast majority of people. It's a store of wealth. It has an allure. It allows you to actually see into the future because you can have rates of interest, you can actually look at the future. It has to be totally interchangeable with other assets all the time, very, very freely. So there's lots and lots of properties of money. And it strikes me that what Bitcoin does is it does, it ticks about two or three of those. Store of value, yeah, probably, Peter, but maybe a lot of people say store of value, but I would like that value to be kind of constant. And what scares a lot of people about Bitcoin is these big interday volatile movements in the price. How would you, let's say, assuage somebody listening and say, look, I'm interested in this and I get his point. There's a lot of money sloshing around and maybe that money won't be worth the same and maybe there's something else here. What would you say to the people who say, look, I hear you, I'm with you 80%, but these big price movements kind of scare me because my yeah. my, my money, I can buy, let's say I buy Bitcoin at $15,000 today and tomorrow it's at twelve. You know, that scares people. It doesn't have that sense of security in it yeah no i fully understand that um investing in bitcoin and buying bitcoin is is a really strange experience and you go down this rabbit hole where you question everything you you don't just buy bitcoin you end up questioning the role of money the role of governments and the role that they play with central banks in controlling the economy and so it's a really strange experience. Um, but I, I would still just go back one step and I would challenge your idea that Bitcoin isn't money because the way I see it is that 
anything can be money if you're willing to exchange something for it. So for example, if you're in prison, cigarettes may be a much better form of money than cash because it has utility for you in that point. Um, in terms of Bitcoin versus cash, uh, like physical kind of cash, if I wanted to buy something slightly nefarious from somebody, Bitcoin might be a better form of money. So I think different types of money have different trade-offs in different scenarios. There used to be this website called the Silk Road. Did you hear about the yeah, Silk Road? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy who's so, the, the guy who's doing a lot of time for that, isn't he? He's he, he, yeah, rest of his life. Yeah, and in America that means the real thing. So keep going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's got a he got a double life sentence plus forty years. His name's Ross Ulbrich. He's in prison for the rest of his life, and he created this website where it was a libertarian website where you could buy anything you wanted and. Yeah, if you wanted to buy a bit of weed or any kind of drugs, you could. But let's just take it to a place where it's a bit more in the kind of acceptable morality. When my mum was sick and she was had cancer, we wanted to treat her with cannabis oil. Obviously, that's an illegal substance in the UK. But when somebody's dying, you don't really care. So the only way I could find a place to buy it from online, uh, sorry, buy it from was online, which was a website like the Silk Road, which was a dark web marketplace. And the only way I could buy it was with Bitcoin. So in that scenario, Bitcoin was money to me because I could use my credit card. Yeah, no, I hear I you. Use gold. So I say in different scenarios, different things, assets, such can be money. But I'm with you if you're going down the pub and you know you want to get yourself high Guinness. It's maybe maybe not the best form. But the the thing about Bitcoin, it's very hard to explain it to someone in the UK, the US, Ireland, most of Europe to explain to them. They need to. Yeah, think about it as a way of storing their wealth. But when I went out to Argentina or when I was in Venezuela, it's very easy to explain to people because these countries have suffered from serious levels of high of inflation. So in Argentina, you had La Carolita, where the banks would not allow you to get your money out and they were experiencing 40% inflation. And when I was in Venezuela, they've obviously experienced hyperinflation. I think when I was there, it was 10% or inflation a week. And I find a lot of people don't truly, truly understand inflation. I think inflation has been sold to us as growth. It's, it's growth in the economy and inflation is good. But actually, for anybody who saves money, we know inflation is terrible because it actually reduces the value of your money. So the people I met in Venezuela who are experiencing 10% hyperinflation, what they used to do is buy Bitcoin and they would hold their Bitcoin. And every week they would buy, they would trade out the amount of Bolivar they needed to survive the week and keep their money in Bitcoin. And because it, their inflation was far outpacing any swings in the price of Bitcoin, they were fine. Yeah. No, no, I, I get you. Like, it's funny, in, people in Zimbabwe uh, yeah. used uh, litre bottles of Coke to store their wealth. And that became the Bitcoin, that became the default currency uh, at the height of Mugabe's craziness. And the reason is, is very simple. It's You can kind of, you can figure out in your head how much you would have had to work to buy a litre bottle of Coke in the mid-1990s, and that's what they use. So, Peter, I'm one of those economists who's very agnostic about money and where it comes from, because if you look at the history of money, many things have been money. They've had cowrie shells has been money, cigarettes and jails have been money. In Ireland years ago, it was cattle, it was slaves, it's been gold, it's been silver, it's been anything that has value. If you go all the way back to our friends in Mesopotamia, money was based on barley. So, you know, Bitcoin arrives, it's a function of its time. You know, I'm, I'm agnostic as to whether it survives, it doesn't, it's appealing, it's not. But what I would like to understand is when I hear digital gold, I have a picture in my mind of what a gold mine looks like. 
It's a seam in the ground. It's a geological legacy. Some poor mis- misfortunes go down and have to mine it. It's taken up. It's minted. It's purified. It's quantified. So I know where it comes from. Where does Bitcoin come from? Yes, it's a good question. And I'm going to try and keep this as simple as possible because I'm aware your audience might might be their first exposure to Bitcoin in any level of detail. But with gold, it's a, it's a tangible physical thing and it has to be mined out of the ground. With Bitcoin, it's digital. It has to be mined digitally. And there is a twofold role of the miners. So think of them, the miners are these computers that run algorithms that secure the network. So what happens is, say I send you a bit of Bitcoin and you send me a bit of Bitcoin, we create these transactions. And what the miners do, every 10 minutes, they collect up all the transactions and they batch them onto what is known as the blockchain. You've heard of the blockchain? Mm -hmm. And the blockchain is exactly what it says, a chain of blocks. So they will batch them up and they will create a new block which sits on top of the old block. And what they do with that is they cryptographically seal that. So those transactions are stored and can't ever be changed. Because what Bitcoin did, it solved this thing with digital money called the double spend problem. Previously, when people were trying to create digital money, they had this problem where they could spend the same bit of money twice. But Bitcoin, they managed to solve this problem and stop you being able to send the same bit twice by creating this chain of blocks that cryptographically seals all the new transactions. So the miners do that, and the reason they do that is they get to, they get paid in two ways. So every time you make a transaction, you have to pay a very small little fee. And also, to close the block, all the miners are competing to solve an algorithm. So if you think in terms of gold, there's a cost to mine gold. If gold was really easy to mine and there was loads of it, um, you would be out in your garden digging it up. But it's really difficult. You have to go to the bottom of the sea or into a mine, and it's costly. And the cost of producing gold is only usually a little bit lower than the current market cost. To make Bitcoin have any value, one of the key inventions was this thing called proof of work, whereby you would have to you would have to pay some kind of cost to mine the Bitcoin. And that's done so in electricity. So if I have a mining machine, I'm running it, I have to pay electricity to run that machine. So there's a cost to me. But what I'm hoping is that as I'm mining, I get to close one of these blocks. And in doing so, I get the transaction fees and I get something that is known as the block reward. So the block reward is now 6.25 Bitcoin. So when I close it, I get the 6.25 Bitcoin and I get the transaction fees. And hopefully my cost of electricity is going to be below the value of those Bitcoin that I've mined. So really, it's, a, it's an incentive mechanism to keep the network secure because what you want is tens and thousands, hundreds of thousands of these machines competing because that therefore makes the network very difficult, therefore, to hack. Because the, the only way you could really, one of the only ways you could really destroy Bitcoin is by changing the transactions, creating fake transactions. But to do that, you have to keep mining new blocks on top of old ones. Okay, so... I get that. So that's the the sort of technicalities of Bitcoin and how it kind of regulates itself. Mm-hmm. Critics will say it's very, very niche. It will remain niche. They might be dismissive and say, Do you know what? It'll also remain slightly criminal or quasi-criminal because of the fact that you can trade on the dark web, which is on the one hand can be as innocent as buying little bits and pieces of this, that, and the other. 
On the other hand, it's going to be as criminal as buying children, right? So people get naturally very, very worried about it. What do you think of the view that, yeah, Bitcoin has a, a role to play, but that role is going to be in a very small, very niche sector of what is an interesting monetary global economy? And so as a consequence, it's not really a threat to the mainstream monetary authorities. It's just a digital addition to the monetary story, which has been going on for 5,000 years. Yeah. So a couple of points to deal with there, and, and very good points. And, and they, these are often raised. So the first point on criminal criminal usage, yes, you know, criminals and the sex industry tends to converge on the newest technologies first. Um, we've seen that over and over again. But actually, the, the statistics don't hold up. Um, the, the most common used currency for criminal activity is actually the US dollar. And it's physical cash that tends to be used a lot. Um, but we know banks are, are guilty of money laundering and supporting criminal organizations. We, we, we've, we've seen that time and time again. I think Bitcoin, it's less than 1% has actually been, I'd have to double check it, but I think it's less than 1% has been tracked for illicit use. So that one re, really doesn't, doesn't hold up. Um, um, in, in terms of your second point, in terms of it being niche, of, of course it's niche. Um, but every year it gets bigger more people begin to use it. And whilst I may discuss and promote Bitcoin and discuss its virtues, the reality is it's completely optional. But if you talk to somebody in Lebanon right now about what Bitcoin is and what it can do for them, they're going to be very interested in it. And I think what's going to happen is over time, Bitcoin is going to continue to grow and it's going to swallow up other currencies because over time, people... to tend to converge on the best form of money. So right now, its market cap is $200 billion, whereas gold is, say, $10 trillion. But over time, it's eating away at gold's market share. It's beginning to take more and more of its market share. And it will I think it, it will come to a point where most people will have to make a consideration, do, do I want to own Bitcoin? Now, a lot of people don't own gold. So the reason the vast, to own Bitcoin... The vast, vast majority yeah. of the world don't own gold. Yeah. But in some ways... Bitcoin makes it a lot easier to own an asset similar to gold. It, what it does do, it rewards those who take that risk early on. So now it's highly speculative, highly risky. But if you buy now and you buy early, then if Bitcoin does continue to grow and becomes this world digital global financial asset, then you will be rewarded very well if you come late on. Like now, if you buy gold now, you're buying at $2,000 an ounce nearly. You know, the upside is a lot lower. If you buy Bitcoin in 10 years, the upside will likely be a lot lower. But it is completely optional. You don't need to use it. I do. I store over half of my wealth in Bitcoin now, and, and I'm very glad I do. And can we, just before we go, can you, you know, when, when again, when I said at the start, like when, when the whole world is shouting and roaring against it, it's usually for me a very good sign to be mm -hmm. sniffing around and be interested for a variety of odd idiosyncratic reasons. That's the way I see the world. If you look at a five-year prognosis, what do you think, Bitcoin? Well, it's a very interesting time for it right now because we are in this very strange times. Like we had the 2008 financial crisis and we kind of recovered. And then we, we kind of, I think everyone's been aware prior to the pandemic who works in economics or works in finance is that you know, the, glo the global economy wasn't in a healthy position. And there's a guy, you probably know Rao Powell, the guy from Rail Vision. He, mm -hmm. he, he keeps talking about, 
the 10-year bond rate and how that's trending towards zero. And we were starting to see negative interest rates. And these aren't certainly things that I understand particularly well. But when I hear something like a negative interest rate, I'm like, hmm, that doesn't sound particularly great. But we are now in this position where we have this pandemic. We have people in lockdowns or in semi-lockdowns. We have businesses closing. We had a was a 9% drop in GDP in the US and I think in April in the UK, it was 24%. We've, we've got these... 11% in the EU. So yeah, it's, these are big numbers. Yeah, these are greater than any drops we've... I mean, 2% is scary normally, and 6.5%, I think, was the Great Recession. So these are very scary numbers. The governments and central banks have one option, which is to print more money. And if you increase the supply of money, then you're going to devalue it. You cannot increase the supply of Bitcoin. You cannot in- increase the supply of gold. So... As we, we're going to see a massive increase in, in the supply of money in Western nations over the next year, potentially five years, for me, it's a very sensible hedge to own a scarce asset. And that scarce asset for you might be gold, it might be Bitcoin, it might be artwork, it might be front row tickets to the Lakers. Uh, for me, it's Bitcoin, because I think it's the best form of money we, we have right now. A lot of people get quite scared of Bitcoin because it is intimidating, and they don't know where to start. And, and also, when they see the price of it, they think they've missed out. They think they're too late. And I always say, just it's the, the way to start is really simply. Just go and buy £50, £100 of it, move it around, get a feeling for what it is, and then don't think about making one huge investment. My, my investment strategy for Bitcoin is multi-year. I always look at a five to 10-year time horizon. I have no intention of selling any Bitcoin in the next decade. So whilst it jumps around in these scary kind of price moves, I look at the long-term trajectory and I kind of ignore that. And the best way to do it is, it's not to buy just big chunks. It's just to say, I'll buy £100 a month for the next year or £100 a month for the next five years. And in doing so, you're committing very little, little, but you are exposing yourself to a scarce asset, which has a potential customer base of billions of people. And that's a lot easier and safer way to get involved and understand it than trying to make these big, scary investments. I thought that would be worth throwing in. No, it is worth throwing in. It's absolutely because, you know, people have lost a lot on Bitcoin by getting overexcited. And, you know, the beautiful thing about the human is we are an irrational, very giddy, very excitable creature. And what happens in all booms and busts and speculative manias is we get giddy on the way up together and we get depressed on the way down together. And that's where you lose your shirt. So I think it is very, if if you're interested in Bitcoin, Maybe bite-sized chunks, little bits, little bits here and there. Begin to think, as I was saying earlier on, money is a form, believe it or not, of abstract thinking. And the only way you can think abstractly is to be involved in whatever game you're into. So, Peter, I think it's very, very interesting to talk to you. Thanks very much. And uh, hopefully we'll see you on the West Coast of Ireland from Donegal to Galway one of these years, okay? Or one of these weeks, I would love to do that. All right, man. Take care. That was Peter McCormick there, rounding off our sort of crypto, our little dipping the toe into crypto and Bitcoin and blockchain. Hope you found that interesting. It's in response to a lot of you have been uh, contacting us on Patreon saying, let's sort of dip our toe in crypto and have a look at it. But what's your takeaway from what Peter was saying? Well, John, as you always know, uh, when I'm asking things about the future, I usually start with the past. Indeed you do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, because I think we learn from the past and we make all the same mistakes again. And I think, yeah, that, yeah. I think that they're in the same thing. So, you know, what interests me in Bitcoin, it clearly has a place in the great story of money. Yeah. I think that what money is, printed money, is an extraordinary technology that humans have acquiesced to. We mm. invented and acquiesced to, which allows us to do 
amazing things that otherwise would be totally limited if we didn't have paper money. I happen to think the paper money is probably the most significant and dynamic economic invention ever because at its root, paper money allows you to trade with people and trade is what makes us rich and trade is what actually brings humans together. And in actual fact, I would go so far as to say that money, rather than being the root of all evil, as Mm. people say, it's actually been the avenue to humans being much more peaceful than we otherwise would be. And the reason is very simple. If you go all the way back to hunter-gatherers, right? If you had something that I wanted, or JM had something that I wanted, the only way I could get it off you was to knock the shit out of you. (laughs) Was to actually fight you to get the stuff. That's why I'm doing boxing. Yeah, exactly. The pair of us. <laughs> Tanya, down, Neil, I feel I feel like an Adonis. You know he won the award of, of uh, top gym and top trainer? Well, what we should never do, John, in that case, is show a photograph of you and I. <laughs> because we are the products of the top gym, the top trainer. And I believe his currency, to use the Bitcoin expression, would be debased profoundly <laughs> by us. But if we go back to it, I think that... And it's a big philosophical question about money. In actual fact, I think it's the most interesting part of economics. Mm. But I think that at its very root, paper money, the technology that is paper money, allowed us to create this notion of value in our head. It also facilitated trade. And trade is what facilitates human progress. It actually brings us all together. And what it does is it brings us together without needing to fight. One of the great examples, I years and years ago, you might remember, although you weren't that into soccer, do you remember soccer cards when we were kids yeah. in school, right? I think Americans had baseball cards, right? And you'd go into school and you'd have like five Liam Brady's, two Johnny Giles's, <laughs> whatever, right? And you didn't want five. And you'd trade with a mate of yours, right? Yeah. And suddenly, but what, what made the soccer cards work was the more and more and more people who joined the game. So you'd have three Man Uniteds, one Leeds United, one Liverpool, one Wolves, one West Ham, right? But you had to trade with each one. So as long as people, kids, came willingly into the game, the more kids in the game, the more we satisfied ourselves, given what economists would say, the scarce resources, which is the amount of cards given out. So this is a great example of how trade maximizes human so Endeavor. If, and without paper money, this is my point, is paper money facilitates the trade because it takes away what economists talk about in a barter system. Yeah, You have to want what I have and I have to want what you have at the very same time. So you have a pig, I want to trade it for a cow, but if I don't want a pig and you have a cow, then it's useless. Yeah. Whereas paper money allowed us to make that trade without any of us needing to exchange the cow or the pig. So put that into the huge thing called the global economy now and think about the model of the kids playing cards together, soccer cards together. Trade is what makes the world go round. And money, paper money, is the lubricant of that trade. And anything, in my opinion, that reduces the flow of paper money, dollars, euros, whatever you're trading, and anything that reduces that flow whether it's gold or bitcoins or silver or anything, Mm. will suddenly result in the system beginning to dry up of liquidity. 
And liquidity is what makes it liquid. Yeah. And once that happens, we'll stop trading. We'll go back to what I have, I hold. Yeah. Once we stop trading, we stop communicating. Once we stop communicating, we put up barriers. So my sense is that on the big philosophical question, paper money is not only not the root of all evil, but in actual fact is the source of most progress. My sense is we'll see more of this stuff. Technology is changing the world. It's not just changing the world of trade, of education, of telecoms, of communication. It's changing the world of finance. And Bitcoin is yet another iteration of the great story of man and money. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. So, Mark, a bit of good news. The CPD stuff that we've been working on and promising for the past while is now available. Give us a quick rundown of what it's all about and how it works. Yeah, no, it's great, John. It's What we've taken is the course and the tutorials, and we've made them CPD applicable in the sense that if you want to get CPD points, and a huge range of our listeners and people who might not have listened to us are... CPD compliant. They need CPD. It's a continual professional development. And now they can learn economics with us and get their CPD points. So I think it's a really interesting development because lots and lots of people were talking to us on Patreon or me and Twitter saying, can I get points for this? Can I get a, you know, I'm yeah. really interested in studying economics, but it'd be really nice for me to also get a little piece of parchment, a little certificate, some points, etc. And now we are live. So if you want to learn economics with me, to learn macroeconomics in a way in which it's never been learned or taught before, have a gander at Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Join me. We'll learn economics together and you will get your CPD points. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.